This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater, Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Day. The Democratic presidential race for 2020 is beginning to seem like one of those old infomercials. Wait, there's more. Uh, Every time you turn around, there's another candidate who is ready to toss his or her hat in. Just this week, Seth Moulton joined the crowd and making it 19, and Joe Biden, the former vice president of the United States, will make it 20. If you're a Democratic strategist, that's 20 different candidates, 20 different messages, all going in seeming in somewhat the same direction, but kind of not at times. Here to walk us through it is Rodell Molyneux. He is the, one of the founders of Rock Solutions. He's one of the founders of American Bridge. And before that, he was up on Capitol Hill working for such leaders as Tom Daschle and Harry Reid. Rodell, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm joined by my fellow interlocutor, Nathan Gonzalez of Inside Elections, my colleague who likes to uh, check out elections every once in a while. I thought you were going to criticize my Mountain Dew consumption, but oh, that's okay. Well, there we go. Are you, you're back on the sauce? I'm, I'm trying. It's a, it's a battle. I always felt very sad when I saw you with the diet seltzer flavors or whatever. I mean, I thought, like, just, just, do, just do the Mountain Dew. Just, I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible. It's, yeah. All right. Well, well, well Nathan Rodell, uh, let's talk about this burgeoning uh, cast of characters. I mean, Rodell, you, you are uh, paid to craft strategy and messaging for candidates. Mm-hmm. What's it like dealing with a landscape where, you know, I mean, I'm sure by the time we're done recording here, there will be somebody else that we didn't expect to jump into the race. I mean, what what kind of challenges does that present to somebody like you who, you know, you, you have to keep track of this and you have to keep kind of the herd going in one direction? Well, you know, you said 20 different candidates, 20 different messages. You forgot 20 different ways to get paid. Oh, like, this, is a cons- <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this is a consultant goldmine. No, but um you know, I used to be one of those people who believed in closed primaries, mm-hmm. uh, a lot cleaner. Um, you know, get the folks that don't have a chance of winning um, out of there, and you know, let's focus on you know the adults in the room. Mm-hmm. I- I've kind of come, uh, I've done a one eighty on that. Uh, we're in a, I think, a once in a generation uh, time here in the Democratic Party. We don't have a leader per se. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we have leaders, of course. I think Speaker Pelosi is doing a great job, and, and Senator Schumer is doing a good job of leading the Democrats in the Senate, but we don't have a de facto leader. Uh, and we're looking at what does the Democratic Party look like for the next 25 years. So it doesn't surprise me that everyone is getting in, especially after looking what happened in 2016. So I'm all for this. Mm-hmm. You know, Part of me just wants all of them to get in a room, you know, throw a knife in the middle of it, and whoever walks out <laughs> is the person that Who I would will. would walk out? Yeah. that let's 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 analyze this <laughs> I, my, my money would be on bernie i mean he, he just looks like uh he he could actually win a fight i'm going fight. with clover shark <laughs> i'm going with biden oh. on that yeah but um you know I, I listen i think this is actually good for the democratic party and i think it's good for you know once again i was one of those people that uh that wanted uh, Hillary Clinton to, uh, well, one, I wanted her to win the primary, and, uh, you know, I wanted her to win it cleanly. You know, looking back on it, listen, anyone can armchair quarterback. Had, for instance, a Joe Biden ran in 2016, um, 2015 into 2016, it might have sharpened uh, Clinton more than the Sanders fight did. And it's not to say that Sanders didn't put up a good fight. He put up a hell of a fight. Uh, I'm just saying that uh, maybe more competition 
would have made for a better general election candidate. So, you know, as we as, as I look at these 20 folks and listen, they're not all going to, you know, some of them are running, I think, for the right reasons. Some of them are running because why not? Because they want to go to the Iowa State Fair. Yeah, well, listen, <laughs> and they're, you know, where they want to. So I'm not trying to cast aspersions on anyone and I'm not going to name check anybody. But, you know, if you're in a safe seat and you have an opportunity to name your um, or to uh, raise your name recognition um, to a place where it wouldn't have been before, maybe get a book deal out of it or what have you, why not do it? Why not get your thoughts out there, run for a little bit, see if you get any traction and kind of, you know, kind of go from there. And we see it too, Nathan, that like somebody like Bernie Sanders, uh, it wasn't quite a national figure in, in the 2016 race, but by building that base of donors and the email list and just making the connections in 2016, he positioned himself quite well for a run in 2020. Right. I mean, we have a history in this country of people running for president, losing and then winning you know, a subsequent election. Not that that's what's going to happen with Bernie, but running and losing and doing it in the right way can set you up in the future. And, and Rodell, I appreciate what I agree with what you're saying about primaries. It's interesting to me, though, that at the Senate and House level, there's still a this fear of primaries that, you know, mm-hmm. we've got to clear the field for this person or that person, when I think it could have a, a refining component to the eventual nominee. You know, for example, in Arizona, where Mark Kelly is is running um, in the fields basically clear for him. He's never been a candidate for anything before. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's going to be interesting when he gets to the general election, what, do you, what does it look like? Yeah, I'm certainly not going to get crossways with Leader Schumer and or the folks at the DSCC. <laughs> I was surprised that Ruben Gallego did not run uh, in, in, in that race. Uh, that being said, uh, I like Mark Kelly and respect him a lot. And uh, I think that he'll do good things in that race. Kelly, of course, is married to uh, former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, is a, has been a gun control uh, advocate. In, in general, too, Rodell, I mean, is, do you think Democrats are still trying to figure out what to do with Bernie? I mean, I don't want to turn this whole thing into, into the Bernie Sanders hour. If, and this is an if, if for the next year, year and a half, going right into the heart of the election, all that the Congress is talking about is impeaching Trump and Trump, 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 and mulla, 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 and we're not talking about health care and all of the issues that concern ordinary Americans, what I worry about is that works to Trump's advantage. You know, the fact that he is not a Democrat uh, Mm -hmm. and is leading in a lot of the polls, you know, I mean, for what they're worth at this point, is that causing a little bit of like, what do we do about this (laughs) among Democratic ranks? I think it's a little bit too early to freak out. And listen, if he wins the primary, I'll be the first to say, um, while he wouldn't be my first choice, I'll support him wholeheartedly. And I think every other Democrat should as well. But right now, I think what's happening is, first of all, him and Joe Biden, who technically, you know, as of as of today, I don't know when this podcast will will broadcast, but he's not in the race. Yet he and Bernie have been leading you know, poll after poll. I think a lot of this is name recognition. I mm-hmm. also think with Bernie is that, you know, he's he's a, a fundraising machine and he's bringing people into this into this race. They're not Democrats. They might not necessarily vote in, uh, mid- in midterm elections. I think that's a good thing. Let's have this conversation again in four, five, six months, um, you know, as we actually start getting uh, have some having some debates and maybe some of these other candidates get some traction. For anyone that's sitting there saying, oh, there's no way Bernie could win, I, I think that that is a wrong assumption. You know, but that being said, I still think it's a little bit too early to be uh, crowning kings and queens. 
One thing that I have uh, been struck by is that even with the release of the redacted version of the Mueller report, um, which, you know, I I think, uh, Nathan, you were joking earlier today, this is a 448-page oppo research that that you you might want to get from, you might have previously gotten from a firm. Not that many people are talking about it. I mean, Elizabeth Warren, you know, sort of waded into the waters a little bit uh, at the the CNN town hall and said that we should, should, you know, draft uh, impeachment articles. Three things. Just jump off the page. I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, an independent, a libertarian, a vegetarian. (laughs) Three things just totally jump off the page. The first is that a hostile foreign government attacked our 2016 election in order to help Donald Trump. The evidence is just there. Read it footnote after footnote, page after page documentation. But a lot of the the Democrats are continuing to steer clear of this, I guess, just thinking that, like, well, Trump's in the news and all this stuff is in the news about McGahn, Don McGahn, his former White House counsel testifying and, you know, delivering all these bombshells and Mueller and so forth. We don't even need to talk about that. So we're going to continue talking about the kitchen table stuff. Is that is that what you're kind of seeing out there? That's what I'm seeing. And I actually think it's the right strategy. I think there's a subcontext to this that this story isn't going away, even if it's no longer on the, the front page. You know, Trump certainly was not exonerated. You know, you're looking at the, the folks who are going to be with him no matter what. They're still going to be with him no matter what. This gives the folks who never liked him yet another reason to not like him. And, you know, you're really talking about the independents who maybe gave him a chance or maybe thought four years ago or, or several years ago, I guess, that how bad can this be? You know, let, let's try something new. And then they're like, oh, this is actually how bad it can be. And, you know, it's it's in the same way that uh, yeah, I never thought with Secretary Clinton it was about the emails. It wasn't about the emails. It was about all these other things. And like the emails just happened to be the symbol of what made voters say, yeah, I'm not going to vote for her. You know, with, with Trump, it's one controversy after another after another. And I think that that wears on a candidate or a president after a while. So you might not necessarily have a voter going to the polls in, uh, in 2020 saying, I'm voting against him because I think he interfered in this election or uh, colluded with the Russians or obstructed justice. But it's just the totality of, um, you know, maybe this isn't the, the best man for the job. So I think that it's smart for Democrats to talk about actual, you know, kitchen table issues, middle class values, so on and so forth, and let the rest of this kind of, um, you know, play itself out. And that was one of the keys of 2018, right? I mean, mm-hmm. 2018, Democrats were not talking, at least the ones we interviewed that were running for Congress, were not talking about President Trump, because all Democrats are against President Trump. I mean, exactly. in the general election, they're all going to vote against him. And we I think among the, the presidential field, who is more against President Trump? I just don't know how much room. It just feels like a kind of a silly fight because everyone is against everyone's against him. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of this is about worldview. Uh, Paul Waldman had a, a good column about three or four weeks ago about this. About you know, you look at someone like an Amy, Klo- an Amy Klobuchar, and you look at someone like an Elizabeth Warren, and then you look at their uh, their voting history, and they're within a few percentage points of right. each other. You know, but the way that Klobuchar talks about the world, yeah, you know, we're in this together. We need to work together, so on and so forth. Versus you know Elizabeth Warren, where she sets up the you know there are powers, there are entities that are out to hurt you and to keep you down, and that's what we need to fight against. I mean, those are two different. You know, once again, you got people that are voting the same, but their worldviews are so completely different, and that's what they're selling to voters right now. 
And I, I was struck uh, by some of the language, like you, you say about Klobuchar. It- I am someone uh, that runs in a purple state. Every single time I have run, I have won every single congressional district in my state. It's, it's almost uh, Biden-like uh, mm-hmm. in that, you know, I mean, his, he's scheduled to go to a union hall in Pittsburgh uh, later on this week. And, and that that's like the, that seems to be the consummate Biden, like, I'm going to reach across the aisle. I, I mean, I was born in Scranton, and, and I, I understand, you know, how to reach across and, and work with people. And you're right, it's just a completely different... Um, you know, way of looking at things than than say Elizabeth Warren, who is saying like, I am, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go after these guys. I'm gonna break up tech monopoly, yep. break up big banks, and we're gonna prosecute people mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. And it's I I wonder too with a with a field that's this big. Like, let's say there are half the number of people who get to the first caucus in in Iowa. That's still, I mean, one. It doesn't take much to win. No, you're <laughs> in, right in in that. And and I, I would note too that there were. I mean, I think there were 17 candidates, 17 Republicans running in, in, mm-hmm. and by the time we got to Iowa. And that didn't even include Scott Walker at that point. And know? with the proportional delegate system, I mean, winning Iowa, I mean, it's going to get there will be a narrative bounce. But, you know, more than one person are going to win delegates coming out of Iowa in, in, in all the states. But this gets to somebody, for instance, like Elizabeth Warren. And I, I certainly wasn't bagging on her. I think she has some great ideas. I don't necessarily know that they're 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 gaining traction in the media. So listen, I think that they're several conversations going on. You know, there's the Democratic Party of Twitter and cable news, and then there's the Democratic Party. They might not necessarily be aligned with what they care about. Uh, So, you know, someone like an Elizabeth Warren, you know, she isn't getting, I think, the best media play nowadays. But that being said, in a place like Iowa, a place like New Hampshire, I think one of her strengths is retail politics. You can't, um, having spent a little bit of time with her, you can't leave a conversation with her without thinking that she's authentic and that she actually cares about the issues and that she cares about regular people. Um, And that might not necessarily come across uh, via, you know, cable news or what have you. But I think it comes across in person. So I could see her excelling in a place like Iowa and New Hampshire, um, you know, even though she might not be the media darling that uh, a Pete Buttigieg or Beto O'Rourke are right now. And that, that also brings up a point. I'm glad you mentioned those two because they, they do seem to represent a different, I mean, a, certainly a younger um, like less less battle tested, at least in I think in the congressional arena. I mean, Beto had a you know a heck of a race last year against Ted Cruz, uh, and Buttigieg has been very successful in a in a non traditional Democratic place. I mean, a, you know, South Bend, uh, in Indiana. Do the Democrats do, do you think that people are already thinking of what kind of combination that they need as, as far as a ticket uh, to to think that like okay, if we have a a woman or an African-American or somebody who's gay, do, do, do we have to balance that with an old white guy <laughs> or, or something like that? I mean, I mean, it, it's a, it, it, they have such a field to choose from. They could, they, I mean, every aspect of the Democratic Party is represented in the coalition among these 20 candidates. This might be conventional wisdom, but it, it, would, it would strike me as odd if we didn't wind up with some sort of amalgamation of a white, white guy and or woman and a person of color. I, I just think where the party is, you know, what, what you're looking for more than anything is someone who can build the, the biggest coalition, mm-hmm. bring Democrats together all for the singular focus of winning in 2020 and also help with the down ballot races as well. Uh, so I, I think that there, are, that there are folks up and down the spectrum of, um, of our candidates that can do that. You know, listen, the vice president matters uh, for a few reasons. Um, it is a reflection of what you believe in as a campaign. Also, if you're looking at from a strategic standpoint, 
where might you be weak? Where can you have your vice president go and kind of garner some votes um, that you may or may not get, you know, and, and, and solidify your chances of winning and getting those 270 electoral votes? I think a, a potential ticket would be a formidable ticket would be Senator Kamala Harris at the top of the ticket mm-hmm. with Joe Biden as the number two again. Wow. Beat that. I, I mean, and we even have photos of them together in roll call of him swearing her in. Uh, and, you know, and, it's and, unconventional, and, yeah. but there are worse things for Joe Biden than being vice president for Again, another four years. He's, par- he's not barred from being vice years. president. You know, because <laughs> I think Democrats love, you know, and I'm not a Democrat, but Democrats love vice president Joe Biden. And I think as he gets into the race as a presidential candidate again, it's going to be a little bumpy. I mean, he could be the nominee, but it, it's I think they love vice president Joe Biden. So I want to talk to that for a second, yeah, not having made a choice of who, who I support. Um, but listen, but I do have a soft spot for, for Vice President Biden. I think that the conventional wisdom on Biden, well, it, it's true. He does tend to sometimes put his foot in his mouth and, and what have you. But, or, his, or his hands but, on but, Yeah, but, <laughs> you know, but that being said, I think that if there is ever a time for someone, you know, we kind of joke in Washington, D.C., that's just Joe being Joe. American people might just want somebody being somebody, you know, mm-hmm. not being somebody that was created by pollsters or by media consultants. I mean, Joe Biden is, listen, I'll give you an example. A lot of people said, you know, Joe Biden should have apologized more directly to the women that he offended by, um, by you know, by, by being handsy. And he didn't. And, you know, if you're a political consultant, you're sitting there saying, like, you know, Vice President, just apologize, get it over with, let's live to fight another news cycle. I think what was going on in his head, and this is just my opinion, I haven't talked to any of his folks about this, is that you wake up one day and all of a sudden somebody says, the person that you've been for 40 years, you, you're not that person or that, that's wrong or what you've done. And I think he kind of said, you know, stubbornly, hey, no. I'm not going to apologize for being who I am. It didn't come from a place of malice. I'm sorry if I offended anybody, but I'm not going to apologize for being Joe Biden. You know, that kind of authenticity, I think, is important, uh, especially when we're going up against someone like Donald Trump, is that Joe Biden knows who he is. You know, whether or not the, um, the, the Democratic primary electorate wants someone like him, he knows exactly who he is and he's grounded. And should he actually make it through, I think that he would make a great general elect- uh, election candidate. I just don't know, you know, once again, with, you know, the the changing of the Democratic electorate, whether or not he can make it through. But I think he has as good a chance as anyone else. We hear uh, a lot about millennials and they're coming into their own in the workforce, in the voting booth. They seem to be more uh, attracted to the Democratic Party, at least to some of the issues. And they have their first candidates in Pete Buttigieg and Tulsi Gabbard. who are, But they don't seem to be averse to people who are older candidates, people like Bernie. Uh, or Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warren. I mean, these are these are folks who are all on the older part of the spectrum, but they don't seem to be just saying like, oh, no, I'm going with younger people like Cory Booker or Buttigieg. Yeah, I I think as consultants uh, and and as candidates, we um, we do ourselves a disservice when we put millennials or young folks into a box. I mean, first of all, you know, the, the 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 oldest millennials have houses and children and are full-grown adults, and you know they're not 22. So um, as as we start kind of looking at this, they are they're Democrats, but they're not necessarily traditional Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to take geographical considerations into uh, in, 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 into account as well. Um, but also, this goes back to you know Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, you know Joe Biden, Obama's wingman for eight years, right? Like they grew up with Joe Biden. You know Bernie Sanders in a bi- in a binary uh, race last year. He was the anti-establishment one. I can understand why he would be 
um, he would be someone that you know that young people would say like, yeah, he's he's out there fighting against the man. So we'll see what happens. Um, but you know, you got to remember that, and I mentioned this before. You've got your Democrats on Twitter and your Democrats on social media, and you know, then you just have regular Democrats, right? And so you know, I'm a Gen Xer. I could still consider myself young, youngish. Oh, me too. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Nathan, you too. You're young. Oh. Yeah. Count me in. Yeah, but the things that I care about a little bit different than mm-hmm. when I was in my 20s um, right. will probably be a little bit different when I'm in my 50s and my 60s. And there are still a large part of this Democratic electorate that are Gen Xers and baby boomers. I think two, two things to get on younger voters. One, there's clearly an attraction for younger voters to Bernie's message. Mm-hmm. Um, but now there are more people with Bernie's message. There are more candidates who are talking about the same policies. He doesn't have the monopoly on some of these policies like he did in 2016. Uh, the other thing is the word socialist. I think that this, uh, the word socialist does not mean the same thing to people under the age of 40 as it does to people over the age of 40 or mm-hmm. over the age of 50 or 60. And I think the Clinton campaign maybe made a little bit of a mistake and say, well, people will discount Bernie because it's socialist, socialist. And younger voters said, okay, I, I don't know what that word means, but I like what he's saying. And I think that that could be a challenge for Republicans if Bernie is the nominee that they can't just dismiss him and say, well, he's a socialist because uh, it doesn't mean the same thing to younger voters. Well, I think that's a good spot to uh, to end it on, Rodell. Thank you very much for your insight. Uh, we will uh, turn to you again, I believe, before the end of this cycle again, because it's just a pleasure to talk to you and, and, and get, your, uh, get your view on things. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Nathan. And thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, including from your house. Just ask Alexa or whatever you use uh, to, to pull up this podcast, and I'm sure that uh, they'll... Your, your smart house will be able to bring that up. <laughs> and t- please take a moment to rate us on iTunes as well. For more on this and other stories, you can visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at RollCall. And thank you for listening. <laughs>